Hello and welcome to the Brain Care Podcast, a practical and impactful series of snappy episodes on how to optimize your mental health and performance so you can reach your full potential. My name is Dan Murray-Serta, and I'm the co-founder at Heights. We make smart supplements and clever content with the world's leading experts to help you take care of your brain so it can take care of you. Nir Eyal is the best-selling author of Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. He joins us on today's Brain Care podcast again, this time to share tools, tactics, tips, and strategies on how to be more productive. Now, Nir, you joined us on the last episode to talk to us about the genesis of where distractions come from, how it can impact us, the consequences of how we can approach improving its impact on our lives. But in this episode, I want to delve into the actual frameworks and detail to do so. So if you're ready for that, let's get on with it. Absolutely. Let's do it. So in the last episode, we talked about the difference between traction and distraction. Traction is any action that pulls you towards what you say you're going to do, things with intent. Anything else is a distraction. So now you can picture in your mind kind of a number line. And to the right is traction, to the left is distraction. Now I want you to picture two arrows pointing into the center of that line, and these represent our triggers, the things that prompt us to action. Now there are two types of triggers. We have external triggers, which are the usual suspects, the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in your outside environment that can lead you towards traction or distraction. Now, this is what people tend to blame, but it turns out that studies find that that is only 10% of the time that you get distracted. So what accounts for the other 90% of the time that you check your phone? 90% of the time that you check your phone, you're checking your phone not because of an external trigger, but because of what we call an internal trigger. Loneliness, boredom, fatigue, uncertainty, fearfulness, stress, anxiety, any of these uncomfortable emotional states that we want to escape. And so this is Probably the most important insight that I learned from the research I did into distraction is that distraction begins from within. And by the way, it's not just with technology. 90% of the time that we get distracted with all sorts of things, we are getting distracted, not because of some moral failing, not because of some character flaw, not because there's something broken with your brain, but rather because you are looking to cope with discomfort in a maladaptive way. And if we don't understand this, if we don't understand this rule that time management requires pain management, we will always get distracted by something. Whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, we will always find a way to escape uncomfortable sensations unless we deal with them first and foremost. So now we can plot our path to becoming indistractable. Step number one master the internal triggers. We need to have tools ready at our disposal to deal with that emotional discomfort so that we use it as rocket fuel towards traction rather than trying to escape it with distraction. Step number two is to make time for traction. We cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it is distracting you from, right? Everything is a distraction unless you plan what you wanna do with your time in advance. So that's step number two, make time for traction. Step number three is where we tackle those external triggers by hacking back. Why do I say hack back? Because to hack is to gain unauthorized access to something. 
And we know full well that everyone out there is trying to gain unauthorized access to our attention, whether it's the big media companies, you know, Facebook, Twitter, the newspapers, our boss, even our kids, they are trying to capture our attention whether we like it or not. But we're not helpless. In fact, we are more powerful than any of those external triggers. We can hack back. And then finally, the fourth and final step is to erect a firewall, the last line of defense against distraction, which is called making a pre-commitment or a pact to prevent that distraction so that when we're tempted to go off track, there's a safety net to make sure we don't get distracted. So that's called preventing distraction with a pact. So those are the four steps. Master internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers, and prevent distraction with pacts. What does the last bit mean? In the last episode, you know, you referred to religious people, you know, like Muslims who say that they won't they won't drink and therefore it's part of their identity. Is that what you mean by a pact? That's one type of pact. There's actually three kinds of pacts. There's what we call an effort pact, a price pact, and an identity pact. So as we discussed in the last episode, calling yourself indistractable. You know, I have t-shirts made that say indistractable across the front that, that I wear. I used to wear when I went to the gym, right? Because I've always hated exercise. I used to be clinically obese. Uh, today at 43, I'm in the best shape of my life <laughs> because I consistently exercise when I say I will. So that is one type of pact called an identity pact. The other two types of pacts involve effort, so an effort pact or a price pact where there's some kind of monetary disincentive. Uh, one of the most useful is an effort pact. I'll tell you a quick story. So a few years ago, while I was in the midst of writing this book and doing this research, I found that my wife and I uh, had this problem where we went to bed later and later. And not only was our, our mental health suffering because we weren't getting enough sleep, you know, everybody has heard time, uh, time and again how important sleep is to our physical and mental health. And we weren't going to bed on time. Not only that, you know, frankly, our sex life was suffering too. We've been married for over 20 years now and uh, going to bed later and later meant we had very little time to, you know, to be intimate. If this was correlating with you losing all of your weight as well, it must have been a real confusing time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That, that, that was before. This is before I figured it out. You know, I told you, it took me five years to write this book because I kept getting distracted until I learned how to actually do it, right? How to become indistractable. So I looked over these techniques and all the research that I was, I was uh, you know, diving into, and I came across a smoking cessation study that used a similar technique. And what the, so, so what we did, we went to the hardware store and we bought ourselves a $5 outlet timer. And this outlet timer will turn on or off anything you plug into it at any time of day or night you set. So what did we do? I used this outlet timer to turn off the screens and internet router in our home. So every night at 10 p.m., the internet router shuts off automatically, right? Now, what did that, could I turn it back on? Of course I could. I could go unplug it and replug it and I could tether, I could find a way. But what I did was I inserted a bit of effort, a bit of friction to doing something I didn't wanna do so that I could be mindful around that behavior and say, wait a minute, is this really in accordance with my values? Do I really need to be online past 10 p.m.? Nah, I don't need to. This isn't really important. This is so I insert a bit of mindfulness in an otherwise mindless behavior. And so that would be an, uh, an example of an effort pact as this last line of defense.
I'm sure you're very familiar with, obviously, the Eisenhower principle. He said that he has two types of problem, uh, the urgent and the important. The urgent are never that important, and the important are never that urgent. And then that obviously you know, got popularized even more in Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People in this like urgent and important matrix. Do you personally use frameworks like that? Or have you sort of, do you feel like that's a, a catch-all and this is more of a system and a way of life? I think that's a great conceptual model around why this is important. Because what happens is if we do not make time in our day, we only do the stuff that's urgent and the easy Right? I think that's another axis that's not in the Eisenhower matrix is easy versus hard. And what people tend to do every day is the urgent, right? the stuff that, oh my God, you know that we run around like chickens with our head cut off because it's so important, it's so urgent. Right? We have to do it right right now. But, and we have no time for the things that are important, but not urgent. And so we tend to do the easy stuff and the urgent stuff at the expense of the important stuff. And so, okay, well, what do you do with that? Okay, great. I agree with the Eisenhower matrix. You got me. How do I implement it? The only way to implement it is not with to-do lists. To-do lists destroy people's productivity. People do not understand how toxic running your life with a to-do list actually is. Now, I'm not averse to writing down what you need to do. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about running your day with a to-do list. If you look at your to-do list, instead of your schedule, instead of your calendar, you've already lost. You've already lost because you have to decide in advance how you want to spend your time. Why? Because it's a forcing function on a limited resource. You can add stuff to a to-do list forever. You can have hundreds of items on your to-do list. There's no constraint. With a time box calendar, everybody on earth, it doesn't matter how rich you are, you get the same 24 hours in a day. Makes all the sense. And just like a lot of things, right? Once you sort of heard it, it makes you reconsider certain things. Now, I would be doing myself, most importantly, but also our listeners and community, a disservice if I didn't ask you to share some wisdom around how to manage emails. Everyone gets so many emails. Not everyone has, you know, EAs and other, you know, ways that, you know, the wealthy and successful uh, recommend to folk on, you know, how to manage things like emails. So for us common folk that just want to know how the hell do I manage to stem of these emails and not look like a prick to everyone that I'm not getting back to, what's, what's the trick? So when we do time studies on folks and, and understand where are they wasting time on email, it turns out the most time wasted on email is not on the checking, it's not on the replying, it's on the rechecking. And we don't notice this is happening, but this happens all the time. What people do is they open an email, they read it, they put it away, they, then, they, then they read the next one, they open it, they put it away. And then 30 minutes later, wait, what was in that email again? Let me open it. And it turns out we touch the same email five, six, seven, 20 times on average. We touch these emails unnecessarily. So what we need to do instead, when we get every email, we need to promise to only touch it twice. That's the maximum we touch each email. Here's how it works. When we get that email, we open the email. The first thing we have to do is to ask ourselves the most important question when it comes to email which is not what is in the email, but when does it need a reply? Now, if it never needs a reply, it's spam, it's just information that's in your head and you can delete it, then you have these emails. About 80% of your emails will need to need a reply within one week, and about 20% on average of your emails will need a reply today. So what I want you to do is to use labels. You do not label it by the subject, you label it by the answer to this question. When does it need a reply either today or this week, okay? What you're gonna do every day 
back to time boxing, you're going to have time in your schedule only for the urgent emails. So for me, I have about an hour and a half every day that I schedule just for the urgent emails. So already I've reduced my email backlog by 80% because 80% of my emails, I don't have to answer today. I'm only answering the 20% that are actually urgent. Okay, that's the second time you touch the emails when you reply to them, but only in your time boxed allocated time to reply to those emails. Then what about all those emails that you labeled as emails you have to return sometime this week? Well, how am I saving time here? You're saving time because what you're going to do is you're going to book a big block of time in your calendar for those weekly emails, those non-urgent messages. So for me, here's the magic trick that happens with emails. We know, this was published in the Harvard Business Review, about half the emails that the average knowledge worker receives, they did not need to receive and they did not need to reply to in the course of time. There's a magical thing that happens when you let emails marinate they boil away. People figure out how to solve their own problems. That issue that was so important is no longer important. You'll find about half those emails don't even need to reply. But if you reply to them, then you start what we call email ping pong, right? Back and forth. Because the other person, the more emails you send, the more emails you're likely to get back. So if you want to get fewer emails, you have to send fewer emails. And the way to do that is by labeling them by when they need to reply and only responding in that allocated time box makes so much sense thank you so much for the the wisdom and insights i've started implementing it myself and it has definitely been saving me time and i guess the surprise was i actually found it quite easy to organize stuff with you because we were both <laughs> answering in reasonable time not in an urgent and panicked way um, a question we like to ask all of our guests before before they go is as this is the brain care podcast what does brain care mean to you and how do you take care of your own brain in your own life yeah, so to me, brain care is about realizing how powerful our brains are. You know, these problems that we talk about, so many of our problems are a problem of impulsivity, you know, particularly when it comes to distraction and procrastination. It's a fight with our impulsive nature. But here's the thing. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. If you wanted to encapsulate my five years of research into one mantra, it's that. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought that there is no distraction that we can't overcome when we plan ahead. But if we leave it to the last minute, they're going to get us, right? If you wait till the cigarette's in your hand, you're going to smoke it. If the chocolate cake is on the fork, you're going to eat it. If you sleep next to your cell phone, it's the first thing you're going to pick up in the morning. But we don't have to succumb to that. We can plan ahead. We have this amazing ability that no other animal on the face of the earth has. And so brain care is really about utilizing that gift of forethought to make sure that we take care of ourselves. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brain Care Podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and follow us at Your Heights on Instagram and Twitter for daily doses of brain care. If you want to know more about how well you're feeding your brain, you can head to yourheights.com forward slash brain food to get your free score from one to 100 and start taking action from there. See you next week.